we're gonna go into prayer, but as you may know, prayer is simply a word that describes a communication and a relational communication between a person and the Father God. While I'm praying, that does not mean that you have to just simply listen to me talk to God. This is an opportunity where we pray together and we can say thank you. As I'm praying, you could be saying thank you, Jesus, for being the risen king, the one who is alive. So I'm gonna pray now, but I would encourage you to just talk to God as I'm praying to God as well, saying being grateful for what he has done. So I'm going to begin now. So God, I am talking to you and saying that first of all, that your love created a story that I could have never ever considered uh, for my own self. I could have never as a father said to my son, uh, go and die for somebody else. But yet your love for us was so intense that you would do something so crazy as to send your son Jesus to die on a cross for a people that would not even acknowledge him, would not even believe him, and yes, even spat on him and beat him, and yet you, you just continued to show your love even while we were sinners. And Jesus, you're the hero of the day, that you were obedient to the Father, that you were willing to submit to this plan. And yes, it was, it was because of your love for God and, and your Father that you were willing to submit, but it was also because you too loved us so much that you were willing to do what you did. And so Jesus, as we celebrate you this morning, may you by your Holy Spirit speak into our hearts. If there is something where we're blind uh, to what you're trying to tell us, I pray that you'd open our eyes. If our ears have been thick and not willing to listen, I pray that you would cause that to be open. And I ask Jesus that you would do a fresh and a new work in us so that as we, we continue in this service that there would be a, a resounding praise that, has been on, that will be upon our lips like we have song in a long time and so Jesus be proclaimed here be lifted up here may there be a smile on your face as you hear our worship and Lord as as this time zones begin to continue to go across this country I pray that you're the body of Christ the greater church that as we sing as we celebrate that you will just be moved to a place where you want to do a fresh work in our country, a fresh wind. All in your name, Jesus, I pray this. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, isn't it? I just love Easter morning. Uh, you were the ones that chose to come at 8.30. It was probably not so difficult if you are coming because of celebration. If you're coming out of tradition, then maybe it was a little hard coming, getting out of the bed this morning. But if you came to celebrate, oh, how can we not be filled with joy this morning? You know, I, we drove by a cemetery to come in here, right? And there is a scripture that says that because Jesus rose from the dead, that there will be a point in time when he returns and the dead in Christ will rise first. And so, for if Christ is to come in our lifetime again, those at Witness Park that know Jesus will be the first to go, just to let you know, all right? And then those of us who are alive at that point that, are, that know Christ will follow them up and we will get to join Christ in the heavens and that will be some resurrection, let me tell you. So John 10.10 10 says this, the thief comes only to steal, kill, 
and destroy. I have come that they may have life and life to the full. We're gonna be in John chapter 20 today, but I wanna start with this verse that was on your screen. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. These are Jesus' words. But Jesus, I have come that they may have life and have life to the full. So the whole mission of Jesus in, this, in his coming was to give life and a great one at that. He doesn't just say I've come to give life and that's where he stops. It says he comes to give life and life to the full. What does full life feel like? I don't know. I mean, some of us, we live life, you know, in the moment. And, you know, maybe you could describe some of those moments where it seems so full. And, and the best one probably might be if you're a parent watching that child come into the world. Might be one of the mo- greatest moments where you feel life being so incredible that child that you've been waiting for and planning for for nine months and, and they come out and, and you're just like oh, enamored and blown away by the beauty of that child and the, and the delivery of just how, how the miraculous body works. Maybe life is at its fullest when you have that grand moment where you can celebrate something that you've been planning for for a long time and you see it come to fruition. Maybe that life is that moment where you experience where after having a life that was quite frankly lived with no sense of direction, but then you encountered the message of Jesus Christ and your life was forever changed and then you understood what life and life to the full can mean. To give a kind of life that Jesus is talking about where it says having life to the full, I would describe it as this, a life that has purpose, a life that has no regrets, and a life that doesn't wonder why. When I say that, there are whys in this world, but wondering why we're put here should not be the the question. You see, Jesus came so that we would have an understanding of what our life was actually intended for. I mean, that life was broken in, in the sense of, of, of the Garden of Eden, the way that was intended for us, it was broken by what they did there. Adam and Eve messed it up for the rest of us. But then Christ came to help us understand how life can actually be lived. And it's life lived under the leadership of the Father. Now here's the thing. If Jesus says, I've come to give life and give life to the full, How is he gonna accomplish that? Well, ironically, life given to you and I to the full had to come through his death. It had to come through his death. So in order for us to have life to the full, it required him dying. Which again, for those of us that have been around the Christian faith, whether you're a Christian or not, we know that statement, we know that truth. But then the real question is, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe that death was due all of us as penalty for our sins and that unless a perfect lamb, Jesus, died on a cross and resurrected on a third day, that unless that had happened, you and I could not experience that idea of life to the full. It required that perfect lamb sacrifice. That's 
the mission that Jesus came for. It's to give you and I life, but again, that life could not happen unless he died first and then beat that death by his resurrection on the third day. Now, Jesus taught this throughout his three years with his disciples. It was not a mystery that he was conveying that that there would be this perfect lamb that would die and then on the third day would raise from the dead. This was not withheld from them. In fact, he taught it within the days leading up to his death. Overtly, he taught it. But yet, if you're one of the 12, and you've been walking so closely to them, they were experiencing something that what I would call as they were so close to the forest that they couldn't see all the trees. You know that adage? I mean, here it is. They are getting told by Jesus within the days of his death and resurrection that he was going to Jerusalem to die and that he would come back from the grave. Somehow it was lost upon them. Because on the night that he was betrayed, he said that he was going to die and that he was going to be arrested. And, and what did the disciples do? They stood up and like, we won't let that happen. We'll fight to the death for you. Peter even lost himself that at the moment of the betrayal, what did he do? He pulled his sword out and he cut off the ear of one of the soldiers. You see, They were right there. They had heard the message. They knew that Jesus said, I'm going to die. They knew that he said he was going to resurrect. But while it's happening, they lost all those words. Something had been lost in the connection from hearing to understanding. But in John chapter 20, verses 24 and following, an interesting story begins to develop. Jesus has already shown himself to a few women at the the tomb itself. Jesus has also then encountered a couple of the disciples. As they're telling the story to the rest of them that had not yet seen the resurrected Lord, one of the disciples says what probably was reflective of some of the others in their heart. This story is about a man we call Doubting Thomas. Now Thomas gets an unfair rap. He actually spoke what he was thinking. Some of the others probably were thinking the same thing. I mean, after all, the attitudes and actions of the others simply describe the same attitude and actions of Thomas. What did he say in verse 19? So I'm sorry, verse 24, it says, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and, my hand, and I could put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Okay, so Thomas was with the 12 throughout the time, hearing all the teachings of Jesus, then even hearing multiple statements throughout that week that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to die, and then on the third day, he would raise again. So why in the world would, after several of the apostles have seen Jesus, testified to seeing Jesus, would one of them say, unless I not only see him, but I can touch him. 
I'm not going to believe. Well, think about this. If you followed a leader that you put all your hopes into, and you had in your mind a picture of how he was going to deliver Israel. Now, he, he did not struggle to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He believed that. He was following that. The apostles were affirming of that. But the mode by which the Messiah was going to deliver the people was not what was being expected by Thomas. And so when Jesus was hung on the cross, you know, the, the disciples weren't around. John showed up with the women, but outside of that, they were all scattered. They were afraid. They were ashamed. They felt defeated. My guess is Thomas is one of those types that's like, you can fool me once, but you're not gonna fool me a second time. He had put his hopes into somebody that he just saw beaten, flogged, and hung on the cross and at the hands of Gentiles nonetheless. You're not gonna get me to a place of following unless I can absolutely be sure of what's before me. You see, I think that there's a lot of us that as we go through the journey of life, we have expectations of what our lives should be like in regards to Jesus. We follow Jesus, and some of you have followed him for years. But as soon as things get difficult, disillusionment might occur, discouragement might happen, and failed expectations can even stifle your commitment. It's amazing what we project upon God, isn't it? We think our lives should follow a certain plan now that we're with Jesus or following Jesus. Maybe we've been doing some things that are actually more faithful than we've ever done before. Maybe we're, we're giving more than we've ever given. Maybe we're actually talking about Jesus with somebody, yet life seems to be getting more difficult. And you wonder if, Jesus abandoned you. So with disillusionment, discouragement, and so on, you're gonna be hard to convince to step out in faith and be vulnerable again. You see, Thomas did not want to follow a false leader. He did not want to be found among those foolishly following somebody that can easily be defeated. He wanted to follow the winning team and so if he was going to step out in full faith once again, he was going to make sure that he was following the real thing. Hence, I don't want to just see him. I don't want to just see those nail scars. I want to touch them. I don't want to just see that place where that spear pierced his side. I want to actually insert my hand into that place. Kind of a grotesque requirement, isn't it? We often just kind of gloss over the language because we know what, you know what's there. We know the story so personally that we don't think it. He's saying, I want to stick my finger right where those holes were. I want to stick my hand into the side where he was pierced. For those that had already seen Jesus, what do you think the response might have been to Thomas in that moment? 
<laughs> uh, wait till he shows up. <laughs> wait till he shows up, Thomas. And we'll see what he thinks of your little demands. Then you begin to think, okay, so somehow in God's abilities, he knows all things, he can see all things, he can do all things. So Jesus shows up, well, you know, if you had those kind of abilities and you knew that Thomas had said those things, I, I mean, Jesus is about to show a graciousness and a mercy to him that quite frankly, I, he has a different personality from me. I would mess with Thomas big time. I mean, you know, the high five, here, give me a high five. Oh, missed. Sorry, I had to mess with the scab on my scars here, you know? I would have messed with Thomas. I would be like, show him just how foolish he was for not believing the testimony of some of his peers. But Jesus has a much higher threshold of character than I do. What does he say to Thomas? Let's continue on, verse 26. A week later, so a week has gone on, Thomas is holding his ground of being defiant to believing. So a week later, the disciples were in that house again, and Thomas now was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you. Most of the room was like, he's back. Thomas says, oh my. Then he said to Thomas, <laughs> sure enough, he calls him out, goes right to him. Love it, love it. But this is where, again, I would diverge from him. I would totally mess with his mind. Jesus doesn't do that. He meets him at his demands. He says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me yet have believed. Jesus shows mercy, does he not? What did Thomas deserve in that moment? Thomas deserved a slapping. Thomas deserved being removed from the room, quite frankly. But Jesus simply meets him at his doubt, mercifully, and says, okay, touch him. And, and, and then, touch me here. Now, we don't know, it doesn't say whether or not Thomas actually touched him and put his hands on his side. We do know, you get by the expression that Thomas literally probably crashed to his knees saying, my Lord and my God. No small statement, quite frankly. Because he was declaring him as Lord, but he also acknowledged him as to who Jesus had been saying all along who he was. He was one with the Father. Part of the triune God. So, 
if somebody who walks with Jesus for three years sees the miracles that Jesus did and also hears what Jesus taught about him resurrecting on the third day, if you can be there to hear and see all of that, watch him be crucified in spite of the message they said this was going to happen, and be at a place where you have a hard time believing, then I would say it's fair to say that in our generation, two, nearly 2,000 years later, that it's understandable that many people would have a hard time or a difficult time believing in the resurrection of the dead. We doubt this. We maybe, we maybe are here in this room because we're here with family and you doubt this whole story about Jesus. It seems too odd and too strange. Who who of us here in this room could testify to seeing physically a resurrected individual? My guess is no one. So we will walk out of these rooms, this room, and go and tell people we were at church today celebrating a story that says This Jesus died on a cross and came out of the grave three days later. How strange of a story is that? And that even more strange that you would give your life to that story and all that you do and say is under the leadership of this supposed resurrected one. You get what I'm talking about? Imagine what the world thinks of you being here today. It's strange to them. And I'm telling you that it was strange concept to Thomas. He could not get his head around this idea that the man who had said, I'm going to come back from the dead, Thomas could not get his head around it to believe it enough to accept the testimony of his peers when Jesus showed up. Jesus chose mercy in light of his lack of faith. One of Jesus' brothers, literal brothers, uh, Jude, says this in verse 22. He says, be merciful to those who doubt. Now why do you think one of Jesus' brothers would say, be merciful to those who doubt? Because he probably was one. I mean, after all, when Mary showed up with Jesus' brothers, somebody tapped Jesus on the shoulder and says, uh, your mother and brothers are here. And, and what did Jesus say? Says, uh, you are my mother and brothers. I mean, this had to be strange to be a part of Jesus' family and to see all the things he is doing after you had grown up with them. I mean, yeah, he was the goody two-shoes, the one that always did the things that you were, he was supposed to do, but... I'm sure that even doubts were in within them. And Jude, being personally mindful of the fact that he had probably doubted, says, be merciful to those who doubt. But let's not lose this. Even though God says, be merciful to those who doubt, even though God is merciful to those who doubt, there is still 
an important response. You must believe. You must believe. Not believe in the same way that that demons believe, where they, they know what Jesus did. But to believe in such a way that Jesus is your Lord. In the same way the belief came to Thomas right here, where he said, you are my Lord, you are the leader of my life, I give my life to you, and you are my God. Paul says this in in the book of Romans, chapter 10, says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what do you gotta believe? You gotta believe in Jesus' resurrection. You must believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and then you will be saved for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you profess and you are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. So you have to believe. You can't just consider this a good story and and say, well, by identity, I'm, I'm Christian No, you must believe. And you must believe specifically that Jesus is your Lord, the leader of your life, the one you are submitted to. Secondly, you must believe that God, the Father God, raised him from the dead. And this is where a belief becomes very, very much full of faith. You can believe in somebody being the leader of your life and even submit to them. We do that with earthly leaders. But then to submit yourself to someone who is not even right here in your physical view that you can use your five senses and that you can then touch, feel, smell, and so on, but rather somebody who we know a story about that has been revealed to us that says, oh yeah, he died and he came out of the grave. You must believe that. And in verse 11, it says this, and in, in, in that Romans part, it says, as scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. What's that saying? It's saying that if you want to avoid shame before God, you got to believe. You got to believe that Jesus is the Lord, and you've got to believe that God raised him from the dead. You gotta believe that, or salvation is not yours, or you will then be in shame before God. The apostles understood how important the centrality of the belief of the resurrection was to their faith, that it was regularly a part of their teaching throughout the epistles that you read through the rest of the New Testament, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the essential core of belief up to the actions of Jesus Christ as to as it relates to the salvation of our souls. I want you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. That as the journey of the church is growing, different ideas are coming into play where people are like, you know what? We're now, you know, some of us are becoming believers and they're becoming second generation believers. In other words, they didn't see Jesus. They never heard Jesus. They're only receiving the testimony of those who saw Jesus and heard Jesus. But they're beginning to doubt the resurrection, yet they would still want to be followers of Christ. Here's what Paul says. 
It says in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be falsely, false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not, in fact, he, but he did not raise him. In fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who, are, who have fallen asleep are lost. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we of all people are to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So what is Paul saying here? If there is no resurrection of Christ, then this service, this message I'm speaking to you now, and your faith is useless. If you do not believe in the resurrection of the dead, then anything I'm saying now really isn't going to help you. If I didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, then I wouldn't be standing up here either. So bottom line, what are we saying? If you find Jesus' body somewhere on this earth, we're done. We're closing up shop. We'll sell our 20-something acres, and it'll get used for some other purpose because the message means nothing. But because we believe there's a resurrected Savior, then this message is important for you to hear. Also, if there is no resurrection of Christ, here's the other bad news. Not only is this message pointless and our faith useless, but that means you're also stuck in your sins. It says that right here in verse 17. Then we are still condemned. There's still a holy God, and we're still unholy without the work of God. So if there's no resurrection, then we're still stuck. And if there is no resurrection of Christ, then all who are dead already, they have no hope. And if we put our hope in a non-resurrected Christ, then verse 19 says, then we should be pitied of all people. Then we, if literally, if Jesus is not a resurrected Savior, then you and I that are here in this room are to be pitied among all people of the earth because we have followed after some stupid story. But verse 22, what Paul is saying is like, listen, that's all hypothetical. It's all rhetorical. The reality is, is Christ indeed has risen. So the question is, do you believe? Do you believe that he indeed, as Paul says, he is alive? One last passage I want to read is in Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, an important statement is made. 
Because Paul continues his delivery of people, helping them understand that this resurrected Savior is, is somebody to be followed after, and he appeals to us that if we've received anything from Christ, then we should follow his example. So listen to what then he says. Jesus, verse eight, or six, says this. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Then it says, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So then what did God do? Verse nine, so therefore God exalted this Jesus, his son, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Which brings me back to the passages we read. Jesus said to Thomas, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe who have never seen me. Paul says to the Romans, if you believe that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Then he says to those who are doubting the resurrection, listen, if there isn't a resurrected Jesus, then I'm done. There's no message here. But because Jesus did rise from the dead, I'm willing to die for it in proclaiming this news to others. And then God declares, this is my son. I have raised him up above all names that everyone will bow to him and everyone will confess that he is Lord. So people here that are here this morning listening to this, it's more than just listening, it's believing. And it's not just believing that, okay, maybe the story is valid, but it's believing where you say, Jesus is my Lord. It's believing that he has risen from the dead and that by that resurrection, you and I, we can be saved. Do you believe? Let's pray. So Jesus, I think you've got some people here that believe. And we believe that you are the Lord and we believe that you are not in that grave, and we believe that not only are you not in that grave, but you are living and you are leading even now, and you're changing lives. May this truth of this belief well up within us that we may celebrate you as we finish this service. Your name is exalted above all names. Amen.